0: If I were to just work with me, I have this illustration I'm just going to throw out to you. So, if you have a car and it doesn't have gas in it, you ain't going anywhere, right? That's, can we agree on that? No gas, no go. You can't do it. A car needs gas. So if you don't have gas, it doesn't go. If you don't have a baseball or anything that looks like a baseball, you're not going to play baseball, right? There's a lot of things in life that if you're missing a particular element... You can't do it, whatever that, tech, tech, that, that activity may be. Well, in this passage that we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians 13, what we're going to learn is that Paul, Paul is telling us that there is a particular element that has to be in place for church to be church, for church to be a God-honoring, God-inspired, God-energized, eternal value church. And so Paul is telling us in this passage that you can do all, everything right, but if you don't have love, you've done nothing. And that's what he's saying to us today. Today we're going to be in verses 1 through 3, and next week we're going to be in verses 3 through, 4 through 8, looking at this passage. And what happens here is that, is that, as everything, the context for what we're reading has value and gives us some kind of direction for where we're going and why he's saying it. And so the 1 Corinthians, this, this church, this book in general, is a, it has a host of topics in it. It discusses spiritual gifts. It discusses marriage. It discusses church governance or order in your local church. Um, it talks about food to idols, the weaker Christians, the weaker brothers. It talks about sexual immorality, division upon the, among the members, dealing with sin in your church. And then in chapter 15, there's this glorious treatment this glorious explanation by Paul of the resurrection of Christ and you know and it's it's just the text you go to for Easter that's it you know the resurrection of Christ so we're going to take this week and next to study this chapter and see how it applies to our individual lives as well as to our church life and today it's really a little bit heavy on the church life uh, part of it a little bit and so how many times and you hear this quite often How many times have you heard someone say, well, you know what, I just want to go to a church that's really true to the New Testament church. Okay. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, so I'm not sure what that means. But okay, I understand your heart. I understand your intention. You know? And so, typically, what they mean by that is that it's a group of tight knit believers who really care about each other, who are really going to step into each other's lives and help each other. And, and, and in some ways, they're going to be, they say, I want to be that church like in Acts 17 where it says that this church was turning the world upside down. You know? And yet, what we do when we say those kind of things is we're focusing on the church in Acts, we forget about those churches in Revelation. that he had very little good to say at all about those churches. They were a hot mess. And we forget that all the epistles are addressing an issue, a problem in the local church. And 1 Corinthians is just one hot mess. That church in Corinthians was, in Corinth, was a hot mess. So if we say that we want to be like the first century church, well, then if we're looking at all the problems they have, we're right there with them. We're doing great. We're just like the New Testament church. We got issues. We got problems. We got failures. We got weak links. We're just like the New Testament church. So we've accomplished that here at Crossing quite well. All right? And so, um, and, but fortunately, we don't have some of the same problems. But the Corinthian church, they had, they had incest. They had fighting and bickering and taking sides and immorality. There was just a, a vast amount of carnal living. And somehow or another in the midst of this, they didn't have the maturity to engage all that and to manage it well. And what's really interesting is that Paul, being a mentor to the church, and they still didn't have that in place. And here Paul is in three letters. They refer to a letter we don't have. We have this letter and we have 2 Corinthians. In the course of three letters, Paul is trying to step in and address the mess. In trying to steer the ship right. And in trying to address all the issues, we, have the bene- we are the benefactors of learning so much about what he was doing there that we could learn from it ourselves and benefit from their mistakes and benefit from their lessons. So um, one, of the New com- one of the New Testament commentators says that the Corinthian, the, the, the Corinthian Christians' lives, their values, their experiences... Sometimes we're radically different from each other's. And so they're talking about the diversity, the the different types of people in the church, so to speak. And so it it mentions that there are married people and unmarried people, and there are widows and children, converted Jews, converted Gentiles. Some members were free. Some members were slaves. Um, Most of the church was probably a lower socionomical kind of, of on the spectrum of finances, of wealth. They were probably on the lower end of that. But we know also that there were powerful and influential people there. Um, We have record of Erastus being there. He was the city treasurer. We have Gaius there who was financing much of the ministry. We we know that Crispus was involved. He was the synagogue leader. In the Jewish context, that's a big deal. That's a guy who wields a lot of power and influence. And so they had people probably of no influence and people of great influence. And so the, the church had such differences like any church does. But like I said, it just didn't have the guidance and the maturity inside of itself to manage all those differences so that the confusion and the chaos and the division that took place wouldn't happen. Now, we need to look at chapter 12 to get a little bit of the context of what we're talking about here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just referring to a couple of things to give us that context. And and Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts... And what was happening is that some in the church felt that the spiritual gift they had in some way elevated them above other members of the church. So it's kind of like, because I have this gift, I am more important and I have more to contribute to our church. And if I'm not there, you know, it's that kind of attitude, right? And so there are people, because they had a particular spiritual gift, they felt that way about other people in the church, and Paul makes the point that it is God. In verse 11, he, he, he kind of says this thing. He goes, God gave everyone their gifts. And, in essence, what he's like going, is like going, why do you think you're something? Because you didn't have that gift yourself. It was not because of who you were. It was not because of your abilities. It was not because of your talents or skills. God gave you that gift. So why is it that you think you're somebody? God's gifted everybody with a gift. And none of them are more important than another then in chapter in the same chapter verse 12 he goes it's like the body he says it's like the body he says how many of you think you can do without certain body parts and that you would still do well he says every part of the body is needed and so that's the way the spiritual gifts are that's the way everyone in the church is all parts everyone is needed Everyone is important. And then in verse 25, he says, there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And some have concluded that there were more, that some of the people in the church have concluded that they were more valuable to the church because of what they contributed financially or spiritual gifts or whatever. And this, along with other sinful attitudes, led to hurt feelings, divisions, arrogance. It led to somewhat of a a spiritual caste system. You know, you've heard of the caste system in India where there, were, there are, you know, different grades of people in the social scale. And it led to a spiritual caste system somewhat that was um, antithetical, was actually opposed, opposite of what God's plan and God's desire for the local church to be. And essentially, Paul closes chapter 12 by saying, All of you, this is my paraphrase. He's like going, all of you want this gift or that gift, and you want to be more important than the next guy, but let me just tell you, you're missing the point. You all want to have the gifts, but let me just tell you, there is a gift that is greater than all the rest. And so, chapter 12, the very last verse, he says this But earnestly seek, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will will show you still a more excellent way. Let's read verses 1 through 3. All right? There we go. I'm reading from the New American Standard, all right? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This passage here is Paul's setup for a lesson he wants his readers to learn. Those readers 2,000 years ago, as well as us, those they, they valued tongues and prophecy and knowledge and faith and benevolent giving and even martyrdom. And yet Paul says that all of that can be true and all that can be good, but all that can be nothing. So can you imagine this? Let's imagine you have a billionaire and he's counting all of his money and he gets his financial report one day and last month it said he had a billion dollars. And this month it says he has nothing because all the money in his account, all the money in his account was counterfeit. So can you imagine a billionaire who thinks he has innumerable amount of money and finds out he has nothing? That's what this church is learning right now. That's what the Corinthian church is learning. They thought that they were rich in leadership and gifts and all these things. And Paul is saying, like, you you have nothing. All those things count for nothing. There are five if statements in the passage. Verse 1, it says, if I speak with tongues. Verse 2 says, if I have the gift of prophecy. It also says, if I have all faith. And verse 3 says, if I give all my possessions and if I deliver my body to be burned. All of those statements are meant to grab the attention. And they're hypothetical, you know. But really also, you know, that Paul can get... He has a sarcastic, a sarcastic bent to him at times. And this is one of those times. It's kind of this hypothetical sarcastic, you know, so what if I had? You can you kind of hear that a little bit? So what if I had? And he goes, it would be nothing. So what if I had? So let's, let's look at this. and um, So the result of not having love in verse 1 he says there, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he says the result of not having love in that first one is being just noise. This illustration I really like it, 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 because in the context, listen to what he's saying. He says he's talking about them speaking, making, making sounds, right? And then he says, but if you don't have love, all those sounds are just noise. Think about this. He even uses the illustration of a clanging cymbal. Now, I've spoken to a couple of two in between services, and I found out that I'm wrong. But I'm still going to go with the illustration anyway, okay? But can you imagine this? I don't think that there's anywhere around where they advertise t- live tonight. It's a cymbal solo. Please come. And the guy's going to play there stand there and play nothing but cymbals. It doesn't draw a lot of people. Not like a violinist, soloist, or flute, or trumpet. And so he says that 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 speaking in tongues but not having love, you're just making noise. It has no meaning, no value. It's nothing. It's just noise. All that speaking is just noise. It's nothing. The next one is really, really interesting. Because he says there, if I have, if I have, um, the gift of prophecy, and listen, look at the alls in this verse: all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. So he's saying again, hypothetically and sarcastically: if I had all of that, if I had all of that, and did not have love, I am nothing. Now let's be honest about this. We as people are typically impressed by folks who know a lot, who are experts in their field of interest. And we as Christians are especially interested, and let's just say it, are often in awe are impressed by people who can quote a lot of scripture and can tell you all the original languages and what they say and what they mean and can connect the slightest, 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 like strange, random verse in the Old Testament and connect it to something in the New Testament and say, oh, did you see that? And, you and we all just go, wow, I never saw that. This kind of person we're talking about here finds meaning in all the genealogies. That's what we're talking about. And he goes, that person, he can do all that. He can find all that stuff. He can know all that stuff. All of that, all of that knowledge is nothing if there is no love. Nothing. Can you imagine that? That you have all faith to move mountains. That's unimaginable faith in my book. And he goes, it's nothing. To be able to explain all the mysteries, it's nothing. To be able to have all knowledge, it's nothing. Because what provides value to all those things is this, in, this, this unseeable thing which is love, that provides value to knowledge, to prophecy, to faith, to knowing the ministries, the mysteries. It's love that makes it important. And then finally the third one, he says there, "If I give my possessions to the poor, and my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, I think that that word profits me nothing has meaning. Because I think that what he's saying is this, is that there are many people who do these kind of things. They give away everything. Or they would even like, they, they, they physically um, uh, uh, hurt themselves. Self-flagellation. You see that in some faith systems. And I often say walking across broken glass on their knees, that there's this physical suffering, and what that's supposed to do is it's supposed to gain favor with God. It's supposed to show, look what I'll go through for you. Look what I will do for you. I will give up everything for you. And in some form or fashion, in their faith system, which I'm going to just say is, is void and vacant of real faith, in their faith system, they have to do things to be able to get God's affirmation and to make sure that he is still happy with them. You see, none of us would think it's it's right to sacrifice a human. But many, many faith systems throughout history have sacrificed humans or babies to appease the gods. But there are many, many of us who still think we have to do something. Maybe not sacrifice babies, but we got to do something to appease God. That's the point of the gospel, is that we receive God's grace, which means we get something that we didn't, I mean, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. That's what God's grace is. That's what forgiveness of our sins is. It means that we get forgiveness that we didn't earn. And I think that a lot of people who are still giving everything away not all the time I'm not saying all the time but a lot of people who are giving everything away or a lot of people who are suffering physically even to the point of martyrdom are doing these things because they're trying to appeal to appease God they're trying to make sure he's in favor of them so they would, and that's why I think he says it does not profit me to do these things he says those things are meaningless If there is not love. Now, at this point in my sermon, uh, my preparation, I was going to say that the American church has a very warped value system. And then I realized that I'm talking about a church that's 2,000 years old, and they had a warped value system. So it's obviously... Um, not something that is unique to the American church or unique to the Corinthian church, but it's unique to people who are in the church, that we have warped value systems. We value the wrong things so often. And, and sometimes those value systems are things that a particular church has, a particular denomination has, a particular culture can have. But what happens is, as people, as trying to figure out spirituality, we create things that are not part of the Bible, not what God has in store for us, and yet we think they're important. And what's happening here is that what I think is happening here is what, um, is that, oh I just moved, I just, that's what happens when I get reminders on my thing. All right, we're back. So what happens here is that um, he, in these first three verses, he's deconstructing the value system of the Corinthian church. All the things they thought were important, he's just pulling, he's he's like just taking them. It's like all the things they think are important are all these balloons, and he's just taking them, popping them one after another. Not important, not important, not important. Tongues, no. Prophecy, no, no. Not important. All that's not important. And he goes, there's one thing that's important. It's love. And guess what? You didn't have that on the board. And he goes, let's put that on the board. As churches, as contemporary American churches, some of the things we do to evaluate success, or we evaluate that things are going well, there are some things. Tell me something. See, we used to do this in crossing a lot before COVID. Because of the camera, we don't do it as much. But there's no camera in this service, so we'll do it. Talk to me. What are the, some of the things that you've heard of or you think tell us that a church is succeeding? Talk to me. Todd, be the first one. These pe- We don't do this very often, so you have to be the What? Numbers, numbers attend, of- Attendance. School- Good. Yes. Good. What else? What's other things that we think make us a successful church? What? Size of youth. How many kids are in youth group? Yeah, that's right. Or if you have younger kids, what's, how many kids do you have downstairs? in Yeah, what else? That's a good one. I don't have that one on here, but that's a good one. Yeah, what else? Uh, giving. Giving, that's right. Good. Giving is another one. Yes, Irene. Community outreach. Community outreach. Uh, that one's in here. Exactly. Anything else? Uh, missionaries. missionaries. Yep, missionaries. Buildings. Buildings. Exactly, good. All those things. Todd, you already said one. I'm sorry, you only get one. No, go ahead. Church choir. Church, exactly. Yeah. So this is what it is. It's attendance is the first one. There's an entire industry, a church industry that's built around telling us how to grow our churches. There's books. There's seminars. There's conferences. There's podcasts. There's um, instructional booklets. This is how to break the 250... The, 200, the, the 250 attendance barrier, how to break the 500 attendance barrier, how to break the 1,000 attendance barrier, because in some form or fashion, they've, they're telling us that growth and numbers are important. And yet, the fact of the matter is, is that 80% of the churches in the United States are less than 100 people. Some would say it's less than 75. And so then that would mean that I went to a lot of churches in the past several weeks. I like y'all best. But I went to a lot of churches in the past several weeks. Some of them have been as small as 20. Some of them have been several hundred. The one that I'm thinking about that is 20, they've been 20 for a long, long time. And so if they've been 20 members, but they're loving each other really well. That church is doing great. Because the metric is not their size. The metric is their love. You know. But the very first thing people say, well, "Where do you go to church?" "Oh, crossing." "How many people go there?" It's what they say. It's what they do, right? And as pastors, we do it all the time. I try not to, but you're eventually wanting to get to that question. You know what I mean? And so we have this metric that says that growth is good, right? That that tells us something good about ourselves. The other one, the other one that is really common is programs. And you guys brought that up: the youth group, um, uh. Um, community outreach, the things, some of the things you said are also true. And so people come into churches, they're immediately evaluating that church and saying, what does this church have that I need? I'm sorry if you're a guest here and figuring out if you like us or not. I'm not picking on you. All right? So because what, but what they do is say, what do you have that I need? Do you, I mean, and they'll come in. I had one guy one time met me back there long years ago. He said, do you guys have many single girls here? No, I can tell you a church that does, though, okay? So, you know, <laughs> you know but like, they'll come in, and they want, they're want they looking for, huh? No, yeah, it was Bill. It was Bill, yeah. <laughs> and so they come in, they're looking for certain things. Do you have Awanas? Do you have a Bible-based um, a 12-step program? Do you have grief share? Do you have divorce care? What do you, what do you have? You know, do you have, um, are you feeding the homeless? Are, are you fighting human trafficking? Do you know how many churches are being told that it's important for me to be teaching you about climate control? I get it all the time. All the time. Just did a survey about a week and a half ago. And it was about, do I feel, do I feel equipped to teach about climate control? They didn't leave me a spot to say, I don't think that's important, you know, so... In the church context. Don't get me wrong. Don't get mad at me. You know? And so it's these things like that. The people evaluate a church about how many programs they have. Because a, a good church will have lots of programs. But does a good church with lots of programs love people well? Because Paul says that's the metric. There are other things. There are so many other things. It's the quality of worship. It's the trips. You know. It's the size of the youth group. Someone said that. You know. It's do the kids go to summer camp every year? Do they go on a mission trip every year? Um, what do you have? The best technology? Do you have in ear monitors? You know. Do you have good systems? Do you have good organization? Is the preacher able to do you know Charles Swindon, John Piper type of sermons? No. All right. So you know. There's so much that people use to evaluate how a church is, how good they are. But how often do you have someone walk in and say, does this church love people well? I've never been asked that in 17 years. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that it's not a, a, a metric that we are very used to measuring ourselves against. And Paul says, the good church is the one that might ha- have all that stuff but loves people well. Paul says it counts for nothing if there is is not love. So you think about that. We could be pouring thousands of dollars into our campus, into our buildings, but if we're not loving people well. There is a church that you know of in a southern state that said, Publicly, several years ago now, that numbers are important and they value them highly. Numbers are important to us because it was important to Jesus. It was important to God because Jesus preached to 5,000. and the early church, they had people coming to Christ by the thousands. And you know what? Thousands of people go to that church and thousands more are singing their songs every single Sunday. That he would say, Numbers are important. The question is, but do they love people? Now, I'm not saying that because I think we do. I'm saying that because this is the way we evaluate churches. They have great worship. But do they love people? Do they teach you to love people? Do they teach me to love people? Do they encourage me to do it? Do they set an example for it? Do we? Now, In a lot of ways, we probably would grade ourselves kind of high on that scale because we've been through a lot of, we've had lots of opportunities to love. And yet, next week, you're going to all go home feeling like a failure. Let me just tell you ahead of time, all right? Because God's standard is incredibly high. Incredibly high. And so, he says, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing at all. And what happens in this passage is that Paul sets up this staggering standard. And he says, this, this is important. This is what makes all your efforts and all your knowledge and all your suffering and all your sacrifice appealing to God. It's selfless, sacrificial, even painful love. And you can't have successful godly church without sacrificial love. You just can't do it. There's something really, really important about this passage that I need to grasp in my life, we need to grasp in our lives, we need to grasp in our church life. Is that, you know, you think about the ways that churches have have the opportunity to divide, have the opportunity to get angry at each other. And 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 it's not uncommon. I mean, it even is happening in our church where I know there are some people who will not sit next to that person, they will not sit on that side of the church. It's a shame. It's a disgrace. I hate it that it happens, but I know it's here. But, you know, what happens in churches all the time is that churches begin to have competing needs. And so we as a church have made up our minds to say, we think that young families are important, so what we're going to do is we're going to build ministry. We're going to build ministry. We're going to do, do programs. I said it. They're admitting to it. We're going to do programs to help our young families grow and prosper and learn how to disciple and, and, and really, and make new disciples. Well, I can say this in this service. We have more old people in crossing than we've ever had before. And I've already heard before, like, what do you do for the old people? It seems like you give a lot of pension to the young people. Hmm. What about, what about the, the, the other ministry, you know, is, is the other demographic? The other, other, lots of us have different needs and all. But what about the 20-somethings? There's not a church in Bucks County that's doing much with it. I, all my pastor friends now go, no, we don't know what to do with those 20-somethings. We're not doing anything very good with them. What about them? Why aren't they stepping forward and like going, what about us? In the context of, of, of resources, financial and people and programs and all, you're like going, how do we do all that? And what happens is Paul is saying to this. He says, what happens is, is when your church loves each other, what they do is they don't let those things divide them. They don't let the, they don't let the young people point fingers at the old people, and they don't let the, 27, the 20-somethings point people at everybody else. And all those things, he says, love doesn't let those kind of divisions happen. Because what you do is, as we're going to learn next week, love is... As con- love is more concerned about the 20-somethings than my needs. And love is more concerned about the young people's raising up their babies than my needs. Or love is more concerned, like, are we doing any ministry for our elderly people? That's what love does. It steps forward and says, we've got it really good here as a family, but what about those people? What about those people? What are we doing for them? Because I love them. So in the mix of all this stuff, you know, this is how a room full of of all the different things that divide us. That's the way that all these things get put together. The way the church, our church, holds all these differences together is by love. And, And so thus far today, I've really talked about us as a church family and how love works should be working in our mix here. But really, what happens is, is that I begin to love individuals within our church family, and that's what makes our church family love each other. I've been talking about how this works corporately, but really what it comes down to is, individually, how are we doing these things? And next week, when we get in this next passage, these next few verses, there, Paul lays out, like, really high calling for all of us. And this is what it looks like to love. And so, you know... um, and so, um, you, know, uh, you know, the Beatles said it, they think they said it first, and they made a lot of money off of it, you know, but all we need is love, and yet 2,000 years ago, Paul had already written that, and he goes, all you need is love. And so, instead of a hit record, God said this, this is what you need. This is what love looks like. Self-sacrifice to the point of death, not for one's own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Not for one's own good, but for the good of others. Self-sacrifice to the point of death. Think about what Luke especially says. He says to what? Daily. Die daily. He says to pick up your cross and carry your cross. Do you know what he's saying there? It's not putting on your jewelry. He's saying that thing that people die on, pick it up and die on it today. And all of your needs and all the stuff that you want, die to that and be alive to the needs of others. And what he says is, your needs will be met when you do that. Your needs will be met when you do that. Yeah, Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of the love of the Father who sent his Son, who out of love for his Father, (laughs) obeyed his Father to his own death. It was that kind of love that provides forgiveness to us. We, this whole sermon series kind of started in, in staff meeting this past week. And, um, and at that time, I was asked the question because I just recently read a book that talked about the scandal of the gospel. And I was talking about what is the gospel still scandalous or not? And the gospel is still scandalous in this. And that me, I'll start with me. I did not, uh, the fact that I can be saved and that God would die for me is a scandal because I'm undeserving. And the fact that someone who is innocent and didn't do anything but was punished, that is a scandal. How often does it happen when we read in the news that someone served 30 years in prison but they got their DNA done and they found out they were innocent all along? And everyone wants to read that story. And everyone wants justice to be done because the, an innocent man served a sentence he didn't deserve. The scandal of that. And yet Jesus was the innocent man who paid the penalty that he didn't deserve when he died for my sins and yours. That is scandalous. That me and you could be adopted into the family of God. That is love. That is love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, thank you um, so much for the example of Christ. Thank you so much for your word. Help us to see ourselves in this text, and to see ourselves as, you know, next week of being impatient or unkind or jealous or whatever it may be, and then come running to you to ask you to grow us up and to make us into people who love you and love each other in the way that you designed for us to be. In your name we pray, amen.